your love for us and your promises to us as we come before your throne and sit at your feet to learn from your word. And God, would you speak to us through your word this morning and as we see um, painful circumstances that happened in a person's life that, that resulted in, uh, in a change, in a, in a true repentance, Lord, would you cause us to see where maybe we are uh, where we have sinned, where we have, are holding on to things that we should let go of in our hearts, Lord. And I pray that you would draw those out, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and, and encourage us with your truth and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Randy is a young man who's been working as a salesman for about, for several years. He has a normal Midwest life and he and his wife are married with, with two young children. They both became Christians in college, and that's when they were dating, and since then they've been attending the same church. From the outside, everything looks pretty normal in Randy's life, except there is a secret that he has been trying to keep under wraps and he doesn't want anyone to know about, and that is that Randy has been enslaved to pornography for several years. I tried to pick a name. This isn't anyone in the room. I hope there's no Randys in here. If you're visiting, your name is Randy. Uh, it's a bad day to show up here. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> you're going to get hammered today, Randy. <laughs> no. He's been enslaved to pornography. And recently, Randy was caught by his wife. And now things have gotten tense between them. Uh, the sin combined with other things in their marriage is really making things cold, and there's distance that's, that's going on in their marriage. And so Randy, uh, in kind of in efforts to please his wife, he goes and he reaches out to some friends in, in the church and tells them what's going on. And his friends sense that he's really not taking this thing seriously enough, and they confront him about the seriousness of this sin. They tell him what it's going to do to him, how it's going to destroy his family. And for the first time, Randy is truly convicted but he doesn't know what the next step should be. He's felt bad and guilty about this so many times before, but he doesn't know what, if there's ever change can happen. And so what's the answer for Randy? Well, what would you say to him? What's the answer for any of us when we're faced with a, a life-dominating sin or a deep sin in our hearts? How can change take place? And the answer is Repentance. That's a word that we use a lot in this church, from Adventure Club all the way up to our adult ministries. That word, that doctrine is said and taught faithfully. But it can be easy to know what a word means and not quite see how it actually works out in everyday life. And that's my hope to, for you all this morning. As someone who spends a lot of time with the youth, I, I've dealt with this a number of times. Uh, but I don't want you to think this is a sermon about lust. Uh, this is just the example I'm using. This is a sermon for every person in this room, including myself. I want you to think about that sin that you may have been putting off dealing with or the, the sin that's heavily embedded in your heart and you really just don't know how to root it out. Maybe it's laziness or pride. Maybe you struggle with yelling at your kids. Maybe you covet someone else's life. Perhaps you have bitterness or anger towards someone in your life. And so I'm going to refer back to Randy throughout this sermon, but I want you to write in and to plug in whatever that sin is going on in your life. And just like with anything that's valuable, uh, there's counterfeits, and repentance is no different. There are counterfeit repentances. And so just as we're thinking about what genuine repentance is, I think it's helpful to think about what repentance is not. And first of all, repentance is not only feeling sorry. 
Repentance is not only feeling sorry or having a remorse or an emotional reaction, but there's no change. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. To be sure, grief is a factor in repentance, but that's not only it. This passage describes someone who's broken over their sin and they turn to the Lord and change. That's the godly grief, but the person who just feels bad and never turns from their sin is not repentance. You see this in this Old Testament with Esau. Hebrews 12 actually talks about this. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 says about Esau, the, the son of Isaac, the brother of Jacob. He says this, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau foolishly gives away his birthright, and then when he sees what's happening and the consequences of that, he, he feels sorry about it, but it never leads to change. And that goes into the second point, the, something else that repentance is not, is repentance is not feeling sorry because of the consequences, or because you got caught. Again, we can see this in the Old Testament with Saul. Uh, You can see this counterfeit. When Saul had a victory in battle, he broke God's law by offering sacrifices himself personally instead of waiting for a Levite to do it or for the prophet Samuel. And the result was that the kingdom was going to be taken away from from Saul. And when Samuel tells him this, then Saul has this, this oh no response. And he says this in 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 15. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. He was only sorry because it was going to affect him personally. Thirdly, repentance is not doing penance. It's not doing penance or taking some measure where you punish yourself until you feel like you've atoned for your sin. Maybe Randy could do this to himself if he thinks, like, man, that was really bad. But, you know, I do good things, too. And so he immediately calls up his his grandma to go fix her faucet. And he fixes her faucet, and he paints the railings at the church. And then he tells himself he's really not that bad of a guy. Fourthly, repentance is not bargaining with God. It's not trying to work out some deal with God. Uh, Maybe it would look like this if Randy said, God, I'm doing my best Uh, to not lust when I'm scrolling through my phone, but you got to help me too. See, when someone tries to bargain with God, they often think they're repenting, but really they're trying to manipulate God to what they want. And fifth, repentance is not just saying magic words. It's not a liturgical prayer that you say to absolve yourself. It's not just saying the words, forgive me, but there's no actual heart change. So what is repentance then? Well, the theologian Wayne Grudem gives a really helpful definition for repentance. And he says this. He says, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. You see that? So it's a a renouncing, a standing against your sin and heartfelt sorrow. You forsake it and then you walk the other way in obedience to Christ. That's what repentance is. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 really clearly describes this. Isaiah says to a a wicked Israel, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see that? Forsake his way and his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, refers to a change, and not just a change in mind, but a change in the whole inner conscious self, the whole man. And if you're to look at repentance in the Bible, you see that really we're talking about two things when we talk about repentance. There's a repentance for salvation, right? That's the one-time event where you turn to the Lord in faith and confess your sin to him, submit to his lordship, and, and uh, trust in the righteousness of Christ for your salvation, and a lot of times we think, like, that's it. Like, that's repentance, and then, then that's it. I'm good. But really, there's, for the Christian, there's, there's more that goes on in the Christian life. There's, a, there's repentance for sanctification. It's a continual process where, where not to lose or gain your salvation, but to restore a fractured relationship. You all know that when we say or do bad things to each other, it causes separation, and it fractures what's going on. And so, so repentance for the Christian is the restoring back of that fractured relationship as we become more holy. Okay, so we know what repentance is not. And that repentance involves a sorrow over one's sin that leads to a forsaking of that sin and then walking in obedience to Christ. But what does that look like? And that's what brings us to our text this morning in Psalm 51. If you haven't done so, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David. And I'm not going to have time this morning to dig out every juicy morsel in this psalm because it is so rich and it is so good. But I want to do more of a survey of this psalm and to really show what is the, uh, a process of sanctification. And I hope that this will be helpful to you, that we can apply this to our life because every Christian is going to have to repent for something at some point in their life on a regular basis. And that you can help others to do the same. So Psalm 51. The context for this psalm is really interesting. Sometimes when we read psalms, we don't really see, we don't quite know what exactly is going on, the occasion for the author to write. But with Psalm 51, we know exactly the occasion. It says so right before uh, verse 1. In, In my Bible, it's all caps and italicized. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you were to look this up, and we're not going to, I'll just summarize it for you. It's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And what's going on there is that David, King David at that time, it was the time of fighting, his, his, his army is out fighting in battle, but for some reason David is not with his, with his army fighting. He decides to hold back. At the, at the palace. Maybe he needed a little self-care day, a little me time. And so he says, I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to get some well-earned time. And while he's lounging around his castle, he looks over his balcony, and looking down on the rooftops, he sees a woman bathing. And instead of turning away from that, he delights in it, he lusts after her, and he inquires after her. He finds out that she's the wife of a man that he knows really well, Uriah, one of his warriors. If it hadn't stopped before, it should have stopped there, but he doesn't. He has her brought to him, and he has sexual relations with her. And the result is she becomes pregnant. And now David thinks, I've got a real problem on my hands. So he devises this plan. I know what I'll do. I'll have Uriah come back from battle. He'll stay the night with his wife. He'll think the baby is his, and no one will have to be the wiser. Well, Uriah doesn't take the bait. 
he says, if my men aren't able to be home with their wives, then I'm not going to do that as well. And he, he spends the night at the, at the doorway of the palace. David, frustrated he can't get a break, comes up with another plan. And the plan is going to be that he is going to order his general to pull back when the battle's the fiercest and leaving Uriah out there to fend for himself and he will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And then David, playing the hero, brings Bathsheba to his palace and marries poor Uriah's wife and, and marries her. And he's thinking to himself, okay, it's done. Got away with it. And he probably would have if it hadn't been for a pesky prophet named Nathan. Excellent name. <laughs> and he comes to David and he tells him this little story. He says, yo, David, uh, there's this guy in the kingdom, and he's a poor man. Everybody loves him. He's a great guy. He has this one little sheep, and he's raised it since it was a lamb. It's like a part of the family. His kids play with it. It sleeps in their house. And this rich man moved into his village, and even though he's got many, many sheep, he comes over and he snatches that poor man's sheep and, and eats it for supper. Can you believe that? And this enrages David. He's like, oh my goodness, this is going on in my kingdom. Tell me who this guy is and I'll have him put to death. And then Nathan, in one of the best gotchas of all time, points a finger at him and says, you're the man, David. You're the man. Look at what you've done. Look at the wickedness that you've done. Look at how you've sinned against God. And then all of a sudden, it comes back to him. And David realizes what he's been doing. You see, Hebrews 3.13 says that sin is deceitful. Meaning that when we are serving our sin, we tell ourselves lies to justify what we're doing and also to twist reality of what's really going on. But David shows us that faithful followers of the Lord can mess up in dramatic fashion. David is not called the man after God's own heart because he never sinned, but rather his response to the horrible things that he did. And that response is repentance. So what does that look like again? Psalm 51. So this is the occasion. He's just been confronted about his sin. It's all overwhelming him. He realizes exactly what he's been doing. And so he cries out to God, and this is his working through this sin in his life. It's really amazing. We get to see the insight of someone when they're working through a sin, being, being inspired by the Holy Spirit as they're writing it down. And this is what he says. And the first step of genuine repentance, then, is that genuine repentance surrenders. Genuine repentance surrenders. Look at verses 1 through 4. David says this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." So David, first thing he does is he comes clean to the Lord. He surrenders. He doesn't hold anything back. David is asking for mercy there. He says, have mercy on me, O God. In the New American Standard, it says, be gracious to me, O God. He's asking for undeserved favor. He's actually asking for an action to be done. He, he doesn't have this, and he needs it from the Lord. David knows that he's in God's crosshairs. 
And he has a basis for going to the Lord. He says, uh, why? He says, why can I ask this? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. That steadfast love there is that, is that word hesed that is used over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. Pastor Dave talked about it when he went through the book of Ruth. And hesed is, refers to God's covenantal faithfulness. That love that he has for someone based purely on his promises and his commitment to them. And David is saying, I'm calling on you based on those promises because that's all I have left. There's nothing I can bring to you. David has a relationship with the Lord, in other words. He says, according to your abundant mercy, meaning the fullness of God's tender affection. Verse 2, notice that David is, is crying for cleansing. And this is a theme that we see throughout over. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is a plea for Again, for cleansing, and and we're going to see it over and over and over and over again. It's a major theme, and he revisits it over again. He uses four words to describe his sins. He uses transgressions in verse 1, iniquity in verse 2, his sin in verses 3 and 4, and the evilness of his sin in verse 4. And those are really the four most common words referred to sin. And David says, they all apply to me. They all apply to me. My transgressions or my rebellion. My iniquity, meaning my perversity. My sin, meaning falling short. And this evil, the ugliness of sin against God. One author describes that David is leaving no stone unturned. He is confessing it all to the Lord. He's not trying to to fake something before God. David has come to grips with the seriousness about his sin. He doesn't soften what he did to God. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't make excuses. He fully admits his sin and the ugliness of that sin to the Lord. He refers to himself nine times in these four verses. Obviously, David has sinned horribly against Bathsheba and Uriah, but down to the root, sin ultimately is against a holy God. Uh, Marlon talked about this before. When we see the holiness of God, we understand just how, how much we fall short, how wicked our hearts can be. And he realizes that ultimately when he is sinning like this, he's essentially saying to God, God, I don't want you. I wish you were dead because I'm going to do what I want. So he comes clean to the Lord. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't minimize his sin, but he confesses it. So if we're to think back to the, the, about Randy at the very beginning, how would Randy apply this first step in this process? Well, the wrong way would be if Randy said something like this to God. God, I messed up, and this time I got caught. I'm sorry this thing is hurting my wife, but she doesn't get how hard my life is and how lonely I am. Please help my wife be nicer to me so I won't be forced to go look at those bad things. See, he's sorry he's got caught, he's minimizing, he's blame-shifting, he's absolving himself from guilt. But he's telling himself he's going to God, but he's not. The right way would maybe, maybe be if if Randy said something like, God, I know you're merciful and gracious and I'm des- in desperate need of that grace. I've been so selfish and I've hurt my wife deeply and betrayed her trust. But my deepest sin is against you because I have used what you have redeemed for evil purposes. I've tried to make myself God by giving in to my lustful desires. Please forgive me for my wickedness. So is there a sin that, that you're holding on to in your life? Are, are you plugging it in yet? Are you willing to come clean? And that first step is a doozy. It is. It's really hard to be honest about your sin, even to the Lord. 
But it doesn't stop there. Next we see that true repentance not only surrenders to the Lord and comes clean, but then accepts the consequences of that sin as well. And you see this in verses 4 through 6, really the second half of verse 4. David says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And David is really making a a contrast here. He's saying, God, I I am wicked and and sinful from the very beginning, but you, you are just in everything you you say. You are righteous in what you do. And it's tough to wrestle through thinking about this. He, Dave refers to himself as being sinless since birth. That can be hard because a lot of times we, if we're honest, we want to say, God, it's not fair. It's not my fault. I was born this way. This is who I am. I have needs. But David doesn't make those excuses. By the way, he's not saying that he was conceived in a sinful way, but rather he's making a theological statement. He's identifying as a son of Adam. Theologians call it original sin. He's been sinful since birth as that sin has been passed down from person to person. See, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin, but we sin because we are born sinners. David acknowledges God's position as judge. And he knows that God is right to really give him the full wrath, and that would be just. Again, he's not making excuses. Rather, he's standing against his sin with God. And David would pay consequence. David would have to endure consequences for this. The, the baby that Bathsheba um, conceived would die. And essentially, not, not totally, but pretty much, this event sets up a chain of reactions that results in constant civil and political and familial unrest in David's house. See, a truly repentant person doesn't minimize or excuse their sin. Every time this happens, friend, genuine repentance, no matter the emotions or the words they are expressed, that it's not happening. A person whose repentance wants justice to be done, even if that justice affects them personally. Uh, A repentant thief will gladly take the prison time because they know that is just. And if we're fighting our sin, we're willing to accept the consequences. Victory over sin is so much more important than losing personal freedom. It's better to lose some bad friends, some activities, personal free time, if that results in you walking in obedience with Christ. And David emphasizes in verse 6 with this behold. He said before in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And then verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, David knows what God desires from us. That the Lord desires truth and genuine sincerity. And when someone is willing to do that, that's when true wisdom can be taught and heard and understood. We can begin to see what once was blurry is now becoming clear. And David is seeing things very clearly right now. So he surrenders to the Lord and he accepts the consequences. How would this step look for Randy? Well, the wrong way would be as if Randy's friends, they, out of love, they, they offer accountability and they suggest a phone with no internet and filters on his home Wi-Fi and that he should seek out regular personal discipleship and accountability. But this, this 
incensed Randy, and he, he flies off the handle. And he thinks that they're just acting like his wife and not taking him seriously. Uh, Randy's friends try to set him up with a discipler, but after the first meeting, Randy quits going. He says, everyone is against him, and this is a church that doesn't care about grace. But the right way would be something like if, uh, though Randy's hesitant at first, he submits to the wisdom of his friends, and he follows through on their suggestions. Randy knows that he can't trust himself, and ultimately he deserves much, much more than these minor comparatively consequences. Randy meets with the discipler and makes sacrifices to his personal time to make room for his homework and his Bible study. So which are, I think about myself, what, what can I be concerned more when I'm, when I'm sinning? What, what are you more concerned when you're sinning? Are you afraid of getting caught? Are you making excuses? Thirdly, we see that genuine repentance then turns to God for forgiveness and change. True repentance turns to God for forgiveness and change. Look at verses 7 through 12. David is continuing with this, this process of turning to the Lord. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Get this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knows that it is only by turning to the Lord that he can truly be clean from the guilt of his sin. He's no longer concerned about a cover-up. Proverbs 28.13 says that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. That's an awesome verse. And David is using ceremonial language here. He's saying, purge me with hyssop. What's hyssop? Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a, a ceremonial way to be clean. It was a leafy plant that was used to sprinkle blood. And David longs to be clean, not just ritually clean, but Charles Spurgeon says this about these verses. It's as if David is saying, Give me the reality which legal ceremonies symbolize. Nothing but the strongest purification can avail to cleanse me. He's saying, Lord, the, the purity that, that I see symbolized in those rituals, that is what I long for, that is what I need, that is how dirty I am. And he's turning to the Lord for that cleansing. David is pleading with God to do what he cannot. And Charles Spurgeon would go on, he goes on to comment more about this passage, and I think this is so good. And I've got, it's a little bit longer quote, but I think it's worth it. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, It's not enough to blot out the sin. The person is defiled. None but God can do it effectually. The washing must be thorough. It must be repeated. Therefore, he cries, multiply the washes. The dye itself is immovable. And I, the sinner, have laid long in it till the crimson is deeply ingrained. But Lord, wash and wash again till the last stain is gone and no trace of my defilement is left. The hypocrite is content if his garment be washed. But the truly repentant cries, wash me. 
The careless soul is content with a nominal cleansing, but a truly awakened conscience desires the real and practical washing and that of a most complete and efficient kind. It's as if the psalmist says, Lord, if water does not work, let fire. Let anything be tried so that I may be purified. Rid me of my sin by some means, by any means, by every means. Only do purify me completely and leave no guilt upon my soul. Spurgeon really knows how to bring to life some verses. And verse 10 here is the climax of the psalm. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. This is what David has been leading up to. He is unable to give himself a clean heart. And if you've noticed, up until this point, he's been saying, God, take away, take away, take away. But now it changes. And he says, put, put back. Give me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and re- renew, excuse me, renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation of your salvation. His relationship was fractured and he, he longs to be restored with his creator. By the way, in verse 11, there's always a lot of debate about this verse. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And David isn't making a statement about losing his salvation, but rather he's referring to a special anointing that was from God upon the kings of Israel at that time. Uh, Saul had it, and then it was removed from Saul, uh, like, like Samuel said. And Saul proved to be an ineffectual leader, and he lost complete control, and the kingdom went downhill. And David is saying, God, don't let that happen to me. He's seen it up close with Saul. He says, don't let what happened to Saul happen to me. Don't let the people suffer. In verse 8 and 12, I think this is really interesting. It gives us insight to the effects of sin. Uh, It says, he has a word that he repeats there. In verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness, meaning he's not hearing it right now. In verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David has no joy. He has no assurance. He refers to himself that he has broken bones. He's in pain and agony. Friends, sin robs you of joy in your life. I can speak from personal experience. It will rob you of joy. Not just think, I just think about this. It, if you have no joy in your life, it may not be the painful circumstances that you're enduring. And it may not be what other people are doing to you. It may be that there's, there's a sin in your life that you're indulging and not repenting of, like David. It makes us ineffective for God's kingdom work. You can see the sheer carnage of what one lustful look, how that snowballed into something horrific in David's life. And when we're robbed of joy, we can turn to, instead of turning to God, we can turn to other sources for comfort and for relief. We can turn to friends who tell us what we want to hear, especially if we give them select information to give them, get us on their side. We can turn to isolation and spread ourselves thin, and never really commit to discipleship or accountability, and hold everyone at arm's length so they don't look too close. And we can turn to distractions, working overtime, hobbies, extra activities, so that we don't have to deal with the consequences or think about our guilt. So, true repentance surrenders to the Lord. It comes clean. It, it accepts the consequences, and, and it turns to the Lord for change. How would this look 
in Randy's life? Well, the wrong way would be is that Randy begins to work longer hours so he doesn't have to come home and face his wife. Because of all the overtime, Randy is irregular at his accountability meetings. He learns ways to keep the men at church off his back by telling them something like, I'm not doing great, but I'm doing better. And because he's working more and making more money, Randy tells himself that he's being a good husband. The right way would be something like Randy leans into the ministries at his church and he begins to see them as a blessing and not a burden. He starts to see other ways that his selfish pride is working out in his life and he's broken over it. His prayers through this process might be something like, Lord, I realize that my pride, selfish desires, and lack of joy is my fault alone. This sin is so deep that I'm not able to pull myself out. I do not want to be enslaved to this sin anymore. Please cleanse me from my wicked pride and give me the willingness to say no to myself and yes to you. But repentance does not stop there. There's actually not just a putting off, but a putting on that happens as well. And so, fourthly, we see that repentance makes a plan for change. True, genuine repentance makes a plan for change. And I would, I would add follows through on that plan that's, that's implied there. Look at verses 13 and 17. David says, there's a, there's a change here. Look at the change. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The New American Standard says, and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So David only doesn't just demonstrate a willingness to exercise a restored behavior, but he actually makes a plan and states how he's going to act in that restored behavior. Repentance leads to change. And one thing I've learned just in my own life is if I don't make a plan for change, I never will. David plans to use his mouth that he once used for deception to teach others and to express gratitude. He says that, look in verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Notice those words he uses, transgressors, sinners. Those are the same words he used about himself. How does he know who those people are? Because he was one. He says, I'm going to use my tongue to sing aloud your righteousness. He asked God to give him the ability to sing praises so that he can declare God's goodness and his praise. So David doesn't just say the words, express the emotions or the desires to change, but actually puts into action those desires. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, I I love these verses. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David realizes that God is not pleased from heartless works and just doing tasks. That's self-righteous. Rather, God loves to give grace to those who come to him broken and are yearning for restoration. It doesn't matter how deep the sinfulness. God will forgive you and will restore you. That's the awesome promise. 
And the love of the Lord surrounds those who do this. And in the companion psalm to this, there's two psalms written about David's repentance. The other is Psalm 32. He says this, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, that hesed love, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And this step is where I've often failed to follow through. And it's where I see a lot of people stop in their repentance and their sin continues to plague them. I'll just say, friends, this is the major advantage of doing life with the body of Christ. If, if you're not involved in a Bible study or a Sunday school class or the youth group or Xenos or all, the, all these things that we have that are not just programs but ways that we do life together, you're missing out. You're missing out. Seek godly accountability. Request biblical counseling that we offer here. Request discipleship. Seek out discipleship. Don't keep yourself on the fringes and tell yourself that you're doing everything that you can because you're just not. You're just not. This is the benefit of being a part of the body. And so what would, the, what would this look like for Randy? Well, the wrong way, knows there's a, I keep the wrong way, right way. The wrong way would be, though Randy meets with his discipler, he rarely meets with his, his discipler, he tells his wife that he meets regularly. And he pulls back from leaders of the church, telling himself that he's tried what they offered, but it didn't work. And though he's looking at pornography regularly, he tells himself that he's doing better and his wife is just overreacting. And Randy becomes continuously grumpy and aloof and mean while the tension in his marriage only grows. What would the right way look like? Well, it could look like something like this. Randy meets with his church leaders and he tells them the full extent of his sin so that they know how to help him. And together they work out a plan to help Randy overcome his sin by God's grace. And part of this is that Randy begins to determine to see his wife as a treasure and not as an enemy. He memorizes scripture uh, and the truth of those scriptures to fight his lust. He determines to, think, to thank God for something about his wife every day and to tell her. And slowly and awkwardly, but surely, Randy begins to be restored with his wife. Well, how do we know if our repentance is genuine? How can we tell if it's working in our life, so to speak? And Scripture gives us lots of proofs, but one is in our text. And that is, well, it'll, true, genuine repentance results in a renewed focus. True repentance results in a renewed focus. Look at verse 18. This is the last, the last request that David makes. He says, Do good to Zion, and in your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then... Will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Before, David was only concerned and cared about what he wanted. And then when he was confronted, he was overwhelmed with his sin. And now what we see is that his focus is now getting off of himself and onto what the Lord would be pleased with and how others can, can benefit. He says, do good to Zion, meaning Jerusalem. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Strengthen my city. He realizes that his position as king has repercussions. And our sin or our obedience has massive downstream effects for those around us. And David realizes this, especially as king. He knows that where he goes as king, the nation will follow. So what would happen if David 
was faithful in obedience to the Lord? What would happen if he delighted and pursued the Lord God and feared him? Well, the nation, not perfectly, but the people in that nation would follow as the Lord intended. And sacrifices would be offered as true worship and not just heartless obligation. He wants to see others restored to the Lord. He wants the Lord to be delighted in what what he has made people to be. And his focus is now off himself, and it's on others. And so how do we know that our repentance is genuine? When we quit focusing so much on ourselves, we care about what God wants in our life. When we want to see others restored as well, we want to help them do that. We start having a ministry mindset towards others. So the, the wrong way for Randy to, to do this last step would that be he continues to live his life in misery, and he always finds more people to blame for his problems. He bounces around from leader to leader, only saying enough to get comfort and sympathy, and then he pushes people away so they will not look too close in his life. The right way would be that Aunt Randy is overwhelmed with gratitude for the forgiveness that he's found in Christ. And he only wants, he doesn't just want to attend church, but now he looks for ways to serve the church. And he begins to love reading his Bible so that he can find different passages that he can pray over his family and friends. He looks for ways he can be a blessing to his wife. He starts to see other sins that were overshadowed by this massive sin of self centeredness. And it's tough, but he recycles the process, knowing that it's going to be worth it in the end. He's experienced the joy of his salvation, and he knows that even though it may be tough for repenting again, it is well worth it, and the Lord will be glorified. So friends, this is the normal process of the Christian life. This is what happens. We turn to the Lord. We surrender our sin to him. We accept the consequences. We, we turn to the Lord for change and not anywhere else. We make a plan for change. We follow through with it, and we, our result is a renewed focus in our Lord God. So what did you plug in for that sin that needs to be dealt with? Maybe it is lust. Maybe it's sinful anxiety. Maybe it's anger or gossip. Manipulating relationships for your benefit. Being mean and cold to other people. Self-pity. Selfishness. Laziness. Bitterness. Arrogance. Envy. Covetousness. Maybe you've tried to fight your sin, but you never fully committed to the process and asked for help to see it through. Friend, you need to repent for sanctification and be restored to the joy of your salvation. But maybe you've never joined the fight. Maybe you've always thought of yourself as a good person, and it's everyone else that's the problem. Friend, you need to repent for salvation. The process is the same. You need to surrender your sin and your life to the Lord God, the judge, and call on him for mercy. And the righteousness of his son will be applied to your account. And you will be justified. You can know the joy of salvation for the first time. There is a path that leads to joy in this life, to know the satisfaction of the Father and his forgiveness. There is a path that leads to deep friendships, enduring love, and eternal satisfaction. And that path is genuine repentance. So one final question. If you were to plug in that deep heart sin and commit yourself to the process, as David did, what do you think would happen in your life? I think the answer would be that you would repent. 
and that you would see true, lasting change. And if you agree with that, friend, what are you waiting for? And why would you turn to anything else? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning maybe thinking about things in our own life uh, that we've been hiding, maybe sins that need to be brought out of darkness into light. And if there are people like that, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to do so, that it would not be uh, a fake repentance, but it would be the genuine, real thing, and that you would give them the grace to respond so. Lord, for those that are, that are walking in obedience to Christ, would this be an encouragement to them? That they might uh, not grow weary when they see sin in their life, but they would know that there is much joy and glory to your name to be waiting on the other side. And would you help us, Lord, as a body, as a people, to help each other along in this sometimes messy Christian life of repentance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.